This is the 3D Pod, your number one source for 3D printing news, analysis, and insight from 3dprint.com. Now, here are your hosts, Joris Peels and Maxwell Bogue. Hello, everyone. My name is Joris Peels, and this is another episode of the 3D Pod. And with me, as always, is Maxwell Vogue. Hey, Joris. How are you doing today? I'm well, I'm well. How are you doing, Max? I'm great, thank you. And who do we have on the 3D Pod today? Well, actually, we've got Martin Eichnofer, and he's the uh, CEO and founder of 9T Labs. And 9T Labs is a Swiss startup. And actually, like, we don't give the Swiss a lot of credit in 3D printing, but there's a lot of actually interesting companies coming out of that country and a lot of companies coming out of like the uh, Zurich and specifically and uh, out of ETH and EPFL uh, in Switzerland. Uh, there's a lot of interesting stuff happening. So he's just one of a cohort of uh, Swiss companies that are revolutionary in their kind of uh, their segments. And 9T Labs is active in uh, composites manufacturing. So composites well, for a long time, we thought that either, thanks to our Formula One friends, we had short fiber composites in FDM or SLA, which could give you kind of a performance improvement, but you know, not really truly carbon fiber. Or you could do something like, uh, for example, like a, a, what a Mark Forge tried to do with like a filament with composite uh, material inside of it, one strand of composite. And then, well, some interesting companies started to come up doing it differently doing kind of AFP with composites, doing what Impossible Objects is doing with mats. And 9T Labs is a company that really focused on saying, you know what, what if we developed technology to make composite 3D printing kind of, well, commonplace and really, really cheap. So that's definitely why we're having him on the show today. Welcome, Martin. <laughs> thanks, Joris. Uh, thanks, Max. Um, thanks for having me. Yeah, uh, great to be here. Uh, so Martin, you were, you were a researcher, right? One of the very many people that have, were a researcher ended up uh, yeah, ended up uh, starting a 3D printing company. What really made you start a, a business uh, in this area? Yeah, it's a good question because actually, uh, if we go one step back, um, I started my professional life. I mean, I grew up on the farm, so like kind of physical work was always around me and uh, building stuff. And I started my professional life actually being a mechanic, a technician. So I was like operating milling machines and uh, lathe, um, so turning stuff. Um, so like I'm actually uh, some people would call a metalhead. Um, so I, I know this kind of manufacturing quite well. And um, so that's how I started. And then um, basically the academic part just happened to be, um, you know, like a, a consequence of this because I was always interested in new materials and engineering as a whole. And yeah, this led me then to the, um, basically to what I did then on the academic side and um, yeah, ended up being at uh, ETH, um, building the foundation for, for 90 labs. Yeah, what we do. Did, did you go all the way, like, did you get a PhD or, or master's? Yeah. In, um, academics? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I started off um, with a, ba a bachelor's um, in engineering, not necessarily focused on aerospace or composite materials, but then in my master's time, uh, this is also when I transferred to, to ETH here in Zurich, um, where I really got into composites. And at the same time, my brother started working on 3D printing. Kind of like this was this time where the do-it-yourself printers came out, you know, like 2012 yep. or I think 11 maybe, uh, like right before the, the big hype there. And that's what, how I connected it, yeah, in, in my master's time. And the, the PhD was more consequence um, of building a bigger foundation for for the spin-off. Um, so because I knew, I realized uh, that was actually my MBA, which was in between the uh, master and the, the PhD. I realized that there's a great opportunity, but we, we are deep tech, frontier tech. So there needs to be a solid foundation. We were not yet there. So that's what the PhD was then, the continuation of building the foundation. 
Mm, and then you turned it into a money-making machine. <laughs> Bu- building on it, like. Building on it, fair enough. Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. So one thing, and I asked this before, because, like, um, you know, we, we, we really like certain ecosystems, like Singapore and Denmark with uh, Donsk AM mm-hmm. Hub and MGA in Berlin. And they're doing a really good job of, of, of generating and progressing 3D printing. But some crazy reason, ETH, is doing this as well, and especially on the technology side, especially on technologies like Litos and many others. So why is ETH such a good place to spin off your company or start it? Is it just something that, you know, are there a lot of examples? Do you, like, mm-hmm. talk about it with other PhD students? Like, it's like, oh, I don't know if I'm going to continue in, in this or, or start my own company. Is that it? Or why is ETH successful in this? Yeah, I think there are certainly multiple factors, but I think it starts at the end, like, the, on the strategic side, the ETH, and also you mentioned EPFL, which is the equivalent on, on the French speaking part in, in, in Switzerland, that they put this on the strategic agenda for the university itself, uh, a little bit following like you know, some of the leading examples in, in the US, for instance, um, that they actively built this ecosystem. So the university is investing in infrastructure, you know, there's like labs you can use and there's certain transfer programs you can kind of be part of and there's a lot of courses around entrepreneurship. So yeah, it's it's kind of like nurturing this kind of entrepreneurial spirit and then at some point you once you have a little momentum or a lot of momentum then it's kind of uh, exponentially growing and this is what happening what's happening right now so i think it's a great great environment yeah um for, for entrepreneurial um mm-hmm. yeah entrepreneurship and what, what kind of help did you get from the university was it like like a what do they do for you yeah, so we are a little bit special, I would say, in that regard that we didn't do like after or during my PhD, there are like, uh, like those entrepreneurial courses. I didn't take so many of those, a few, but there's also programs. There's a partially also sponsored, governance sponsored and ETH uh, from the university itself sponsored to kind of get you, I don't know, half a year, one year of salaries and some some extra um, some extra to invest in or build your equipment or whatever you build your device. Um, we didn't take this because we re- very early on met um, two angel investors that um, basically gave us the first money and um, so we could kick off 90 laps. Um, but in general, I have to say there's a lot of different competitions where there's decent amount of money um, and also programs, government-sponsored programs, university-sponsored programs to really give you the, this first kick, basically, yeah, to, to, kick, to kick, kick off your venture. Yeah. Okay. And what, what was the real genesis behind the technology? When did you come up with it or what made you kind of think, oh, wait a minute, we need to do this? Yeah, I think it, it really like it came together. I already earlier touched base on this, like when my brother was working on 3D printing or like exploring it very much more, um, you know, you saw the automation part and automation was not new to me, like CNC milling, you know, turning. This is like, you know, been around for a long time and I, I know this quite well. So I saw this automation part. And at the same time, this was right when I basically deep dived into composites and aerospace structures in particular applications there. So this is where it's basically got connected, um, where I was then, okay, this um, has um, great potential to um, basically bring the automation into the composite world. Or, Or basically, in other words, like there is for a set of applications, entire spectrum of applications and composites, we are missing automation and um, this realization I had at that point. And then, yeah, I, I basically started doing this in my master's and then my PhD. And then now, now we're doing it in labs. And then, but what's the, I guess, was there a specific product or, or thing within composites that you're like, Ooh, just that alone justifies this. 
I think in compo- like composite, it's like it's, it's a little bit a, a tricky material, right? Like it's like this yeah. anisotropic material, and it's uh, I mean, like how it works, you know, like the strengths along the fibers, and um, and that it's like you know you have to orientate in the right direction. This is not new, but it it really makes it for when you look at to some you look at all of those metal applications that are maybe like your projected area of your laptop, you know, like your laptop size uh, parts. You know, if you see the metal parts around you, it could be in automotive or aerospace, whatever, wherever you find those kind of metal parts, you see that those parts, and if you connect this to composites and knowing about these fibers, it, it's not easy to manufacture those parts with fiber composites. And basically looking at all those metal parts, and I knew those metal parts from my past a lot, um, I, I was like, hey, why, are, why is there not a widespread adoption of this high-performance material in that application space? And so that, that's what made me think about, okay, we have to change something, or there is something missing, there is an opportunity. So that's, that's how it started, yeah. Looking at applications like, you know, we always show this hinge, maybe you have seen this on the web page too. This is not an easy part to make in composites. And um, this is what we realized. And then at the same time, you know, like the commercial side of things, the business side of things, that it needs to be also economical, uh, economically viable. So this is like what what all came together and what made us uh, think and um, how we then basically, what was, what was the starting point of building this technology, what we have. Yeah. And, and so how does the technology work exactly? Because you, you kind of split it up into two different steps, right? So how does it work? Mm-hmm. It's the two different steps are actually more on the manufacturing side. But if we go like start from the beginning on the software side and in, in the software, you this is where we where you basically, you know, the requirements of the application. You might also know a little bit the, the design space, you know, how, you know, where it needs to fit in. And those kind of basic requirements um, allow you then in the engineering software to design your fibers and place your fibers in the most optimal way. So really leveraging the strength of the fiber, that's really important. So you want to have the lightest part, the best performing part. At the same time, you know, lightest part means also uh, least uh, amount of material use. So it means in, it translates into reduced um, cost per part. So this is very important. Uh, we um, also leverage commercial FEA software um, to not just optimize the part but also to validate the part i think a lot of people forget that it's also about digital validation sometimes we call it digital prototyping so you do do your iteration loops in the, in the software then you end up with a, a design where you have the optimal orientation of those fibers and now you have to manufacture it and this is where we also had realizations over the last uh, i'm in the space all close to 10 years so how do you actually manufacture now this uh, this demanding composite architecture right and the way we do it is like we place the fiber strands the composite tapes um, using additive manufacturing sometimes you know a lot of people use 3d printing i mean i usually talk about additive manufacturing this is more like the older terminology and i think there's a lot of a lot of misuse in in this space we could talk more about this uh, in a second maybe um in general like using additive manufacturing to get the automation and the reproducibility and also the direct interaction with software to place the material. And this is what we call in a preform. And this preform is has integrity. It's a, it's a physical part, but it's not yet, you know, like fully there where it should be when in, in terms of quality, reproducibility, surface, fin- surface finish, interlaminar bonding, all those different requirements you need for serious production. That's why we insert this preform into a second pro- uh, processing step, uh, a consolidation step. Uh, we use uh, compression molding to, to apply pressure and heat, bake the part, fuse the part together um, to really like get all those checkboxes checked, which you need for serious production. And I just want to add one thing. The process, the second processing step is not just about the quality, which I already or just explained. It's also about you can do more. 
basically you can have a new design latitude of what you can do with fiber composites. So functional integration you can bring in metal inserts. You can bring multiple, multiple feedstocks together, composite feedstocks together, or even multiple materials together. Um, and many more, we can also talk more about it. But so it's very much about enabling new applications, but at the same time also getting the reproducibility and the quality you need for production. But sorry, just to go back a step, when mm-hmm. you said there's a compression step on it, are you, you're, you're laying out this material and then do you, you're, you're compressing it in a, in a mold or how are you? Yeah, yeah. So do you um, then generate that mold every time for, for a different part? I mean, I understand this is for, you know, large production or not mass manufacturing, but manufacturing purposes. So Mm -hmm. that's not an undesirable thing. But at the same time, does that make it take longer, I guess, to to switch out parts or to jump from one thing to another? Yeah, um, but it's it's exactly what you said. I mean, it's uh, it's tooling. Um, so usually it's metal tooling. Usually it's also steel tooling. It depends a little bit on what what you build it for for the first couple of prototypes or for mass production, thousands of parts, maybe tens of thousands of parts uh, across yeah uh, over many different years even. Um, so yeah, uh, rigid tooling. It really um, is the key um, for serious production of highly optimized, high performance. Uh, you know structures and uh, we do also like on the engineering side engineering of the molding side is also a big topic here um, at 90 labs uh, when it comes to the software and, and our engineering know-how okay and then, and i think it's interesting that you guys found you know a lot of us-based startups are trying to get like this full kind of full stack kind of completely vertically integrated companies because i think that makes it a lot of better sense sometimes it does and sometimes it doesn't but did you guys have to do the software and the the production step and the mo- the fusion step yeah right. just because it, it just didn't work otherwise is that why you did it or good question and the answer is yes and it's kind of uh, <laughs> uh, similar to maybe the experiences um, other startups had or like manufacturing maybe as a whole had and um, there's also a lot of lessons learned we didn't start off with this kind of technology stack like end-to-end with all the different components we started off building more smaller additive manufacturing systems um and and learned from customers um also internally we had learnings you know what does it really take to make a serious production part and what does industry require you know it really starts with the supply chain of the material like what kind of material and what kind of feedstock you're using super tough question to answer for a startup um it also trickles into the business model and all those kind of things um, so yeah, um, we added basically every half a year something to the to the solution until we ended up with a full end-to-end turnkey solution and fully vertically integrated. And I think this is also the key, one of the key to the, one of the keys to unlock serious production. You know, everything from one hand. Or this is what we say in German. I'm not sure if it works in English as well. Yeah, uh, one number to call or whatever to, to, if something goes wrong is I think a really important okay. thing, especially with new new technologies and stuff yeah. as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, just one 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 point of contact would be really very uh, valuable, I think. And and what kind of customers do you have? Yeah, it goes uh, goes across the board. So we we are actively in we are active right now. We are mainly focusing on aerospace, um, aerospace interior in particular, but also in the what we call mobility brackets or mobility component space so those are um those are components that go from mountain bike components all the way to motorbike components all the way to four wheelers snowmobiles this kind of space um which is i mean it really goes all the way to automotive but not necessarily in germany we always say the vw golf example you know it's not the golf which is already like a 
a few million parts sometimes uh, a year. It's, it's really just a, a few 10,000 parts. So it's mass production, but it's not yet into the millions that potentially comes down the road. But right now we're focusing on a few thousand, a few 10,000 parts. And is there like a particular area, a particular volume or a particular part or a particular reason when your technology makes the most sense or? Mm, it, it depends, right? So this is always like the unsatisfactory answer. It depends a little bit on the industry too. There is also medical. Medical comes like medical instrumentation, like everything that you use in the surgical environment. This will come a little bit further down the road. It's on the strategic roadmap, but it's a little bit like for some years to come. So there, for instance, like uh, it already starts with a few parts. And um, but, you know, having those molds, uh, the metal molds, it's it's not necessarily a viable business case if you produce 10 parts or 20 parts. So it really like it starts if you have a few hundred parts and the sweet spot is certainly like north of 10,000 parts a year. And then what sizes can we do then? It varies. So it goes very small, like, you know, much smaller than your hand. Um, I think like in English, maybe like your, maybe your finger, yeah, like even your fingernail, it really starts with applications that are as small like your, mm-hmm. like your fingernail and goes all the way up to applications that are a little bit bigger than your, than your projected um, area of your laptop. Um, I sometimes bring the example of the laptop, um, but it really goes up to like in German, like in, in metric, like half a meter by half a meter. I think that's about like kind of the sweet spot we see from very tiny to about half a meter by half a meter. And then, so you have a matrix material that you also get, I think I'm really intrigued by your choice of matrix materials as well, because mm-hmm. so you've got peak pack, uh, polysulfone and PA 12, and then kind of like PA 11, I guess, bio-based PA, I think it's the Arkema PA 11 or something similar, but, um, so why do you choose those? Cause that's a, they're kind of like, yeah. Okay. The, the the first two, I think I understand. This peak and pack are just for aerospace, right? Mainly. Or, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, why did you pick those? Because I th- I thought that was really quite interesting. Um, yeah. It's at the end. It's like you you. I mean, the materials are they have been around. And the key the key strategy is also to use existing off the shelf stock materials, right? And and they ha- already have applications attached to it. And as you mentioned, like the materials, like the the high end, high temperature, high performance materials are usually mainly in the aerospace so that's 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 correct and pps is usually i mean it's it's cheaper it's more affordable so some applications which are more cost sensitive this this comes into play and then yeah on the on the recreational leisure side um, more the mobility side it's even more cost sensitive so i guess in a lot of case in a lot of cases it's more dictated by the the cost per part what the customer can pay than just by the by the performance because i mean you could just say hey i use a peak or pack for all the applications but it's the business case would not add up so so the nylons okay. are mainly in the mobility in mobility space yeah but then they are, if they're in the mobility space they also have fr and stuff like that right or um fr flame toxicity um all those kind of smoke um requirements yeah comes mainly yeah from aerospace in particular i mean rail also has a lot of those requirements um yeah that's why the pps is a good material um for for some of those applications um peaks packs if the business case makes sense yeah that's why a lot of the nylons cannot be used um in, in that, yeah, that well, kind of environment right, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah you have to use an F, a fire retardant which is like they're usually really nasty as well so it's like uh yeah, then you kind of get stuck let's say okay there's there's glass and carbon great we know those right and there's also basalt which i literally never heard of uh but that's me <laughs> <laughs> so, so why do you have those uh those as the, as the fiber components 
It's it's actually an interesting question. So the technology stack itself or technology, it's not limited to any of the polymers or any of the reinforcement fibers, but you have to be at some point also focused. What is the portfolio material? We're also working with some customers on special um, material compositions, but it's not the, our main focus. But, you know, if there is like a real need and there is a big business case behind it, like we, we will also work on different variations of it. Um, yeah, so it, it really, like, you want to have the right material for the right application. That's what I uh, used to say or always say, in a way. Uh, when it comes to basalt, that's an interesting one because there is not really a widespread adoption of this material. You also, you said, like, you had never heard about it. It's 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 a natural fiber, if you want, uh, because it's, if you want, it's, it's almost like a stone fiber. Oh, right? just, what's, right. what's the advantage of it, I guess, then, as a result of, of, of it in general? Which is probably what you're about to say. I, I would put it. I would put it. It's it's mainly that it's a different supply chain and it has a different LCA or a different CO2 footprint. Mm. It's a little bit heavier. It has quite good performance. There are not so many sourcing channels where you can get it from. Um, you know, like sourcing parties, you can get it from. So that's why it's partly relates to the why it's not not so wide why the adoption is not so widespread. So I have to say it's it's a special material. It, it's not like the adoption is not yet there and i personally i mean I, I don't know like i'm not an industry expert on on the fiber itself because there are others that make you know make those claims that they know all about like what fibers needs to be used for what in the future and so on uh, we <laughs> actively monitor it I, I i see basalt as a good portfolio material but not necessarily as the main driving force in, in most of the applications yeah. Yeah, well, I noticed, for example, I know that aerospace, for example, is really looking at the recyclability of a lot of their components, and and as are the car companies, right? They're not only talking about three D printing com components, but also like conventionally manufactured carbon fiber components, uh, and also just like looking at the end of life, what they're going to do. It they're really thinking more circular, and that's also a bit of a problem for uh, for composites traditionally. And I think the natural fiber would really go uh, a long time, a uh, long ways to solving that or partially solving that. Yeah. Yeah, that's, it's a good point. So it's actually very close to it's at to the it's very close to the core um, what we do at Ninety Labs. So circularity, recycling, upcycling, we'll actually have a lot of things coming out this year, and this is like one of the main strategic points. I, I also personally drive in the company, so we have actually uh, great opportunities with the technology stack which we built to really deliver on the promise of circularity and upcycling, which is sometimes something you see a lot in, in the composite space. You know, there's always like a, an icon with a leaf and, you know, maybe green um, that says, you know, like recyclability and things like that. But you really have to live up to the promise and deliver it, um, deliver on, on that promise. And this will we actively invest and work on to be very knowledgeable and very capable of delivering on this. So we will see a lot of things around recycling and also bio-based bio um, material compositions. Have, have you that, actually seen any bio-based materials yet that, with, that you can use for a composite? That you're happy with, I guess. Um, I think there's a lot of stuff, uh, lot of stuff on the on the polymeric uh, on the polymer side, which yeah. is already available. But then more on the fiber side itself. I mean, you have the natural fibers. We talked about basalt, but I think the more known like flax and hemp and things like that, that with more known. And I think the adoption is also already further there. Um, I think there's good progress. Um, there's always like sometimes a little bit tricky with the temperature resistance on natural fibers, but I think there is a uh, there's great progress yeah um so we we have seen great results and maybe to to add why you know i claim it's also a wild claim in a way right our technology stack is good for this like maybe to elaborate a little bit more 
what we do is like we leverage with our technology the fiber strength better. And it's also a zero waste approach. But maybe coming back to the first point about leveraging the, the fiber strengths better means we can use an inferior material, just in pure mechanical terms, to uh, fulfill the same requirements as um, a higher end material if you leverage the fibers better. And traditional composites work a lot with fabrics and non-optimal orientation of the fibers. So they leave basically, in German we say here, you leave a lot on the street. So basically right. you're you're not leveraging everything um, like the full performance. And by doing this better as the software and the automation and the technology approach which we take, we can make an inferior material work for a higher performing or higher end application. And this is really like how we bring like the natural, like in special the, the, uh, the natural fibers, how you can kind of bring them into high performance applications. This is just yeah. one side. You know, I mentioned then zero waste. It's really like, you know, just the material which we add is what, like what we print and what we put into the mold is what what's in the final part. So there's it's a zero waste approach. Um, then there's a lot about like how much energy you use in, in 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 the approach itself. The recycling part is very interesting. It comes also back to the molding side, second processing step, where we can bring multiple feedstocks together. So we can really just add a few continuous fibers, maybe virgin, maybe also recycled on that end, and and add some other feedstock, some recycled feedstock to it. So we can really get um, a very low performing in in you know in a way a very low performing recycling feedstock we can get it into a high we elevate it into a high performance application so this is great i'm very um how would you say it in english i'm very bullish about this uh, this, this topic <laughs> yeah. okay so and, and then you're but you're lining the 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 fibers or you're orientating i should say the fibers in order to determine strength along the way and that's part of what you guys are able to do on the yeah. software side of yeah 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 and this is like a very known concept i mean it's been around right. for yeah. since the beginning really like it's not just a few decades like from the beginning it's like okay we have to use the fibers in the most optimal way but conventional technologies over the last 50 years we're always like how do we manipulate like those millions of fibers and even a small part you could easily have like a million fibers so how do you uh, manipulate those and, and you know like make it basically work on the manufacturing side so that's why we ended up using textile industry technology, like, you know, like the fabrics, like t-shirt, when we're wearing a t-shirt, this is like what, how fiber composites are made mostly today of. Um, and we basically said, okay, we have to change the paradigm there to manipulate the single, maybe not the single fiber because they're very tiny, but let's say fiber bundles, which are, you know, gives us high resolution and um, a very optimal way of, of leveraging the fiber. Yeah. So That's a question uh, to the, what, delivering on the yeah. promise what we have been talking about 50 years ago you know, always like right. hey, we, we, <laughs> composites should, the future yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sorry I cut you there no, but that sounds very similar to the BMC, you know, the bicycle company. They're Swiss, right? They're, they also had mm -hmm. kind of a very fiber-based technology to make uh, their bicycles, right? At one point as well, they took some things from fiber to do that as well, right? I think in general, yeah. There's like, if you look like into literature or like just like into applications over the last couple decades you, you see always like there were always big initiatives on because the concept was so known you know leveraging the fiber you have to orientate in an optimal way um so there there's a lot of different ways on how to do it but there's no real for especially the smaller smaller intricate parts you know metal substitution is about the word here like you see like for all those applications where you have to do a substitute metal or complex intricate thick parts the main limitation was that there's no standardized way of doing it, like a combination of software and the engineering side at the same time, a commercially viable way of placing those fibers then in, into the part or into the manufacturing route. 
and that's what we yeah what we bring with our technology stack. And how how, does that, how do you actually do that then? On 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 the software side, I mean, it's basically you give the the software more resolution on, on you know to how how to place those fibers, and then the big question is like, oh yeah, how do we execute this engineer engineer part? Yeah. And this is what what we talked about earlier. Um, that you, we leverage the automation, and this is like the the additive manufacturing side or the three D printing side, where you leverage um, the printer to place those fiber strands, um, curve linear, in, the, in in those optimal ways, in an efficient, cost competitive, cost competitive way. But can I visualize it? Because you're kind of dancing around it. But I'm, yeah, <laughs> the, the central sauce. engineering principle. Like if I would explain FDM, right? I would be like, there's like a wire. It goes in the head. It melts something like that. that that's what <laughs> I'm kind of looking for. But or is that like all? I mean, secret? it's like just imagine like what you would maybe if you look into composites, like the, you will see those big um, robots, right? The the, the the AFP machines. And I think we also uh, someone mentioned this before. Like where you have basically. Um, kind of a system that lays up a fiber strand a tape. And we do this um, for with higher resolution, also curved linear paths, because usually those machines cannot do curved linear path. And yeah, so you can really like um, make very intricate fiber architectures. But it's a it's a it's a layup of a of a fiber tape. And so you're linear, laying the yeah. sorry, come on. No, go go Max, go. No, I was gonna say, so you're laying the fibers down and and hopefully the correct orientation that you want. And then you're you're adding the polymer on top, like you're melting the polymer on top of it, or are you doing both at the same time, or how is that? Um, I guess yeah. how are you combining the two? <laughs> it's, it's already combined. So this is like like that's uh, why I also uh, say like like the tape laying systems work where you have already um, um, an impregnated feedstock. Um, right. right the, the, let's say in other words, the polymer is already like uh, surrounding the fibers. So, but then do you have to do something to orientate the fibers in the impregnated feedstock? What you do is like you have the impregnated tape and you place it. Um, and the tape itself is very narrow, very it's just this is like the fiber bundle I mentioned before. You know, it's a mm -hmm. like let's say three thousand fibers, which you now have the capability to orientate those uh, fibers in a very optimal way um, according to the software. So it's not about manipulating every single fiber. That would be not a commercially viable approach. But it's a manipulating a certain amount of fibers. And then is, you lay out the part. And mm -hmm. then the compression mold happens to then to make it all integrated essentially and, and join everything together. Exactly. Yeah. So it's okay. we call the second step a fusion step. I mean, if you look into literature, there are many different words that describe this thermoplastic welding fusion proce yep. process, autohesion sometimes it's called. So it's really like fusing the part together, welding it together, and it's getting all those quality checkboxes filled. And at the same time, leveraging a molding step gives you this. Um, new capabilities of bringing multiple feedstocks together, integrating inserts and things like that, reshaping the part in the mold. And so it's uh, it's really great to make actual production parts because it's what we, yeah, we can talk more about this if you're interested because like some, you know, we come from robotic 3D printing, like uh, 90 Labs comes in my PhD time, I had two robots, an ABB robot and a KUKA robot to, you know, have all those access, six and seven access to place fibers in all spatial directions. But then you look into some of those applications, especially the metal applications, and say, how, how do I do it? You know, how, how would I print that part, structural part, you know, not a cosmetic mm -hmm. part? And you see that it's almost like a weaving task, right? You have to have the fibers in all spatial directions, but they have to overlap and then they have to go around each other. And you you physically, there's it's a physics problem at some point. You cannot do it with a robot. And this is also what led us to actually this Cartesian printing step plus molding. This is like where it comes from um, many years ago. 
like basically you're doing kind of an AFP kind of automatic fiber replacement, but you're able to weave these fibers in a more complicated way or. Yeah. For some applications, this is more relevant than for others, but they're, they're like a, a, a big spectrum of parts, a big category of parts. They, they require this. Yeah. And the way we do it is we engineering, we engineer it in the software orientate those fibers in a spatial direction, whatever it's needed for to fulfill the requirements, uh, boundary conditions in the load case. And then what we do is we split it into subparts, into flat components, if you want, 2D components, um, where we have a very complex fiber architecture, but it's 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 flat, right? It's two-dimensional. Then we print them, very cost efficient, and then we assemble then we assemble them to a Sometimes we call it a 3D puzzle, uh, like kind of a Lego system, if you want. It snaps together, um, where you then really create those overlaps and those um, undercuts and, um, you know, like looping around fibers. So to make a very structural composite design happen. So that's uh, part of the secret source for this spectrum of applications. And then, okay, that's all really interesting. And then... Um... You know, what are some talk us through a little bit more? What are people are doing this? Because you mentioned, okay, they mentioned the industries. They seem really like super broad. But what are they doing? Metal replacement? Is it? Uh, you know, what's triggering these guys to to, to come to you? Because it seems like you know, adoption of new technology usually, you know, you need to look, people need a little bit more than a hint. You know? Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, that's actually that's a tricky question. I think <laughs> um, because it's we also have um, a lot of learnings along this way. Um, manufacturing is an industry that. Is huge, but it's also not necessarily known for being um, a fast adopter for new technology. So what we need to do is like have a good go-to-market strategy to engage with the customer. There's an education educational side of things in, in, in this too, but we also have to ensure that the customer has success. So what we, we do, like we engage with customers, educate them, but at the same time, we help them to really make the first application, screen the first applications and make the first application a success story. Um, so we work actually pretty closely with customers on the first proof of concept um, to get this milestone done before we deploy the technology to the customer, because it's ultimately our business model is that the customer produces parts for themselves and engineers parts by themselves. Um, but we, we engage very closely in the beginning with customers um, to, to ensure that they, they know and understand the capabilities and the opportunities and that we can also ensure that they have success on the, on the first applications. I totally, totally. But, but, and then the next thing is like, okay, how do you, how do you hope to grow this business then? Cause it seems like, okay, you're shipping out the first system. Usually the first ones are all these defense guys, all these weird, weird things. <laughs> and, I, and then uh, usually, or like it's a car company in a weird mood. Um, they had a good quarter and then buy some new technology. And, um, how are you going to adopt this or how are you going to go to mass adoption? So, so the path for one customer, I get it seems okay, but how are you going to do it for whole industries and, and much larger groups of customers? Yeah, so so one is like we we work certainly like you need some champions, some marquee customers that kind of are like leading it and like kind of showcase it, get credibility as well. But at the same time, yeah, we work with a like a lot of customers on developing those applications and um, get them into serious production, get them into the real world. People can see it, can feel it, um, and this really sparks the imagination. And obviously, we also at trade shows we will present the technology, and so people can connect it and relate to it. Um, so this is certainly one, one of the, the key, because this like manufacturing is an industry, industry where people know each other. They know what technologies are out there. They talk about technology. So there's like also a word of mouth, that I think cannot be underestimated to, um, for on the scaling side. Um, 
but at the end it's really like developing a customer not just to i guess this is also a very important aspect a customer usually would not engage with us if it's just about a single application so they engage with us because they are they believe that this can be a platform technology for them for the next decades to come across many different um, business units across many different applications so that's there's a big upselling part of this um, that it's it's really about developing the customer a lot not just about acquiring new customers okay okay and i think it, what's interesting is that you okay you told a story you're, okay you got a couple of smart guys together guys and girls together and you got some angel, angel investors and it gave you freedom i guess to, to, to develop the technology initially and then where to go next because like the journey after that was significant as you guys ended up raising over 22 million uh dollars from all sorts of investors including stratasys and and um uh, su- significant investors so how did that path go for you guys it's uh yeah it, it wasn't it was it was an interesting ride and it's still an interesting ride i mean um at the end also what i mentioned before right we didn't have exactly this solution and this concept and this go-to-market and this uh, 10-year plan right from the beginning so it was uh, a journey in a way together with the customer uh, not the customer with the customers yes but also with the investors together um to end up executing the strategy and this technology stack which we have um so it's uh yeah it was it was a learning curve it was a it was a great experience and um, our investors are great investors they believe in us they, they believe in what we uh, want to achieve and what we already can achieve um, for us it's all about mass producing those parts um, helping our customers to mass produce the most high the most high performance parts in the world so this is what we what we do uh, again like I, I don't want to take it away but there will also big topics uh, come out this year about circularity and sustainability in general um, so we will also want to support our customers closely to achieve their goals on that side too um, yeah, and it's together with the investors. Yeah, it's uh, the market is huge. Like this addressable market. This is maybe this is also maybe where can we can maybe circle back a little bit to three D printing, pure play, three uh, D printing, or sometimes people call it like three uh, D printing first, uh, where it's just about printing the part. And I don't judge like this approach, but it's just like what kind of applications can you really produce that are mass produced structural load bearing parts? Um, and it's very limited if you take a close look. That's why we built our technology stack, which is really applicable to a lot of applications across different verticals. And the market opportunity is huge. The question is just like, how, how quickly can you uh, capture this, uh, this market opportunity and um, yeah, where to start um, and how to scale it the quickest, basically. And this is like what we together with our investors do um, to map out a good strategy and roadmap. Are, I think, you, yeah. you guys are pre-profitable, I assume, or pre- <laughs> That's always a tricky Revenue. question. That's a tricky yeah, question. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. if you see, <laughs> but if you see a startup uh, raising funds, then you can assume yeah. they are not. Assume they're not, not yet, yeah. not yet profitable. <laughs> yeah. But um, and we are very tech tech orientated company, and doesn't mean like we're not business orientated. But it's it's building a completely new technology, and it's in a way building a completely new market too. So there is a lot of uh, pre-investment if you want. Uh, but um, we are now in, in it's certainly there, there's now an inflection point from our uh, company point of view where the commercial side gains real momentum. Well, I think yeah, just the idea, just the, the market, I think it's interesting that big, being bigger than 3D printing. I was talking to a friend of mine the other day and I said, he was talking about TAM and the total addressable market in 3D printing and stuff. And I was like, yeah, we need to place it outside. And we both kind of were thinking about like how much better that is for investors if you just say, 
you know, just don't focus on the 3D printing market. Don't focus on that $15 billion market. Focus on something else instead, and which is going to be much, much larger because we're so tiny. So I think that that, that that kind of, you know, focusing on lightweighting everything or focusing on just like, you know, metal replacement or something like that could often end up with much, much larger opportunities. Yeah, it, it's, I think it's a great point. I mean, this like in the, in the very early um, in, in the podcast, I said like, you know, there's a lot of misuse for of terminology, especially in the composite space about like, you know, how things are named and things like that. And there's like a lot of history to it too. But on the... Um, application side on the market side you know end use part for instance like one one of like end use part right there could be almost anything right but the, the real big opportunity the big in germany say here cake like the big cake to recapture it is really production parts and they're they have their own unique requirements uh, in terms of business in terms of technology and you have to focus on that so you have to capture this and our technology stack is direct f towards that market opportunity and not um yeah the pure play 3 printing first um um market which is it's a market it's a market opportunity but it's it's not like we're, you know like people talk about the 100 billion dollar market right so like we are now it's a little bit over 10 billion dollar 3 printing additive manufacturing market so how do we get it to 100 oh, it, it it needs to come from production i think everyone would align there but what production means and what production applications are i think this is like where it kind of uh, where there's a debate <laughs> And I have certainly my humble uh, view and opinion on this, uh, but it's, um, yeah, my people, some other people might see it differently, but in the, especially for the composites, there is like what we are addressing is a huge market opportunity, but we have to show it. We have to capture it. We have to provide excellent service and products to our customers. So I'm excited about the future there. Okay. And, and, and definitely, I think, I think, and if you're looking at building this market, is there like stuff you're doing that, that you otherwise wouldn't, or are you just, trying to approach this customer by customer, or are you trying to make like the big idea happen you know what i mean are you trying to make this narrative happen in the press uh about like you know uh sustainable fibers uh being the future of everything or are you just trying to say hey let's win a customer over one by one and keep growing this market it's a little bit of both um we certainly want to be present um and kind of spearheaded and also shape the opinion and, and a showcase and demonstrate what can be done uh, what can be done different, what can be done better. So certainly we invest a lot on the marketing side um, and, and, and also want to continue doing so. But at the end, also you have to deliver on the on, 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 the, on the actual serious production. And the serious production, you know, there's also certification, which we have not yet talked about. And there's just like the, the different gates and milestones you have, even if it's a self-regulated industry, so it doesn't have to be aerospace. aerospace. There's also certain steps you have to you know, master to go into serious production and you have to do it with customers together and you have to ensure that the customers have success uh, going through all those different gates. So it's, it's really both, right? Um, so it's not just shaping the opinion because it would not do you any good on the commercial side. So you have to help to, to see the production parts um, come into reality. And so, yeah. Well, there's, there's some people that have tried to doing it without that, but, um, uh, and, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, yeah. um, uh, so oh, that um, reality. And, and are there people doing production with you guys right now or close to it or how, how does that work? Yeah, we have the first production parts, um, already like produced last year. And like this year, like, uh, a dozen of applications will go into uh, serious production and uh, next year, like next year, 2024 will be the, the big inflection point, certainly on, 
on many different applications going into series production, also more publicly, because it's always the thing, right, about like publicly showcasing something is very different to doing it with a customer behind the scenes, behind the curtain. Right, mm. right. Yeah. Okay. Well, it sounds like a really, you have a really exciting uh, future there ahead of you there, Martin. So uh, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much for having me. It was, it was a pleasure. And Max, thank you for coming as always. Always a pleasure, George. Thank you. And thank you for listening. Uh, this is another episode of the 3D Pod. And uh, have a great day. You've been listening to the 3D Pod. For more information on what you just heard or to subscribe, visit www.3dprint.com or follow us at 3dprint underscore com.